Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. This is Nashville. I'm senior producer Steve Harouche, sitting in for our host, Khalil Ecolona. The summer of 2020 was a time of unrest. And on this day, June 12th, a group of protesters decided that marching through the streets of Nashville was no longer enough. So they set up camp on Legislative Plaza and threatened to stay there until Governor Bill Lee would agree to meet with them and talk about racial justice. Scores of protesters were arrested, some of them multiple times, but they held their ground for 62 days. This hour, we're looking back at what became known as the People's Plaza. But first, a new report shows that child abuse has more than a mental and emotional toll. The University of Tennessee looked into the economic impact of abuse and neglect, and they found it's costing our state billions of dollars a year. And that's the conservative estimate. Here to help us unpack this data is WPLN's education reporter, Alexis Marshall. Thanks for being here, Alexis, and welcome back to This is Nashville. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. All right. So... This report found that child abuse and neglect in Tennessee cost between $3.3 and $5 billion a year. That's billion with a B. How did researchers arrive at those numbers? So this number tries to take stock of some of the concrete economic impacts that we know child abuse has, um, both on individuals in the short term and like for the rest of their lives, as well as the larger community. They did that by calculating the expected lifetime cost of child abuse like per victim. And that's for things that we have hard data on. So here's Matt Harris, one of the report's authors, explaining some of those economic impacts on people who were abused as children. They're less likely to engage in the labor force or engage more intermittently in the labor force and earn less money in the workplace when they do. There's been previous research that has shown that that the people who are mistreated as children are likely to have higher medical care costs, both as children and as adults. Uh, There's been research that has shown that the people who are mistreated as children through a variety of pathways are likely to, to die at a younger age than people who haven't been. Matt and his team also used state data to figure out the costs of things like special education and intervention from the Department of Children's Services. And then they basically extrapolated those lifetime costs based on Tennessee numbers and then through some economics um, ended up finding that the annual cost to the state was this this range between three point three and five billion dollars. Now, as I said earlier, this roughly $5 billion number is actually a conservative estimate. I mean, how is that possible? Well, researchers used a specific type of case to create their total. Um, And they use these cases that are known as substantiated abuse claims. Those are often substantiated by an agency like the Department of Children's Services. And they found that kids born in Tennessee have a one in eight chance of becoming a substantiated victim by the time they turn 18. Mm. Um, But those are the cases that get reported and then also have a certain amount of evidence to prove that abuse was likely happening. Um, uh, And as we know, child abuse often goes unreported. Mm -hmm. So 
and so much so that nationally, the Federal Department of Health and Human Services estimates that actual levels of abuse are about three times higher than the substantiated number of cases. All of that to say that, um, you know, abuse happens a lot more often than we have the the data to back up. Um, but this is still a, a very concrete way of bringing the receipts to how much Tennessee is paying for um, for child abuse. So this is, I mean, this is really heavy stuff that takes an enormous toll on kids often for the rest of their lives. And even though as a society, we understand that harming kids is wrong. Do you have a sense of why researchers decided to make this report about the money? Yeah, I actually asked that question directly to Kylie Graves, who's part of the Tennessee Commission on Children and Youth, which partnered to create this report. And here's what she had to say. When you're dealing with something as hard and heavy as child abuse, turning it into economics feels cold almost at times, or it feels like an odd jump. Um, and so I think part of it is that this is something that we're paying for that's often unthought of or unknown. It's something that anytime we talk about the need for investment, um, the need for additional programs or services or um, family supports, there's obviously a fiscal note or a budget item attached to that. But I think a lot of times mi missing from the conversation is what we're already paying in these future costs and these long-term impacts. So Graves is really hoping that this report can help balance out the costs associated with like prevention programs. Um, so if you, for example, have a proposal that's going to cost like $20 million, that's a lot of money. Um, but this report illustrates the cost of not changing anything. So and, and I hear in there also she's saying that, that this can be helpful, like, like you said, for changing policies maybe or, or potentially policies that get to prevention. Um, what would or what could prevention look like? It can take a lot of forms. And one of the big ones is reducing stress for caregivers. Um, that's especially things like financial stress. And so what Graves was saying to me was that um, increasing federal and state programs for families like WIC for pregnant people and new mothers, um, SNAP, the, the food stamp benefits, um, also TANF. Uh, for, for low-income families and also expanding paid family leave. Those are just some examples of uh, certain types of preventative efforts. She also talked about mental health resources for caregivers who feel like they don't have a lot of emotional support, mm -hmm. um, as well as parenting classes and even like targeted interventions for families who um, might be exhibiting like warning signs of abuse. So is, is Tennessee already doing any of these things? Yeah, so Tennessee administers those programs for low-income families that I just mentioned. Um, and Graves says there are even some programs across Tennessee that do home visits and teach positive parenting. Um, but those might have limited reach. Um, and this study was developed using relatively recent numbers. So it kind of shows what the status is right now um, if we make no changes. Um, so, so that's sort of where things are already. Uh, and obviously it's still costing the state between 3.3 and $5 billion conservatively. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so now that we 
know that mistreatment of kids is costing our state at least this few billion dollars a year, what does the Commission on Children and Youth want to do with this information? Well, Graves said that it was going to be a really valuable resource during the next legislative session. So when lawmakers come back for the regular General Assembly session um, in early 2024, she said they'll be using this to help lawmakers understand the hidden costs of not addressing child abuse proactively. All right. Well, that is WPLN education reporter Alexis Marshall. Lexi, thank you for being here today and thanks so much for your reporting. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going back in time to the summer of 2020 and the start of the action that became known as the People's Plaza. Were you there? Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Steve Harouche, and this is Nashville. The summer of 2020 was a time of nationwide protest, in a moment the many referred to then and since as a racial reckoning. The murder of George Floyd, the killings of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, all of them African-American, catapulted racism and police violence to the center of the national conversation. Here in Nashville, thousands took to the streets. Some protests brought out as many as 10,000 people. But on this day, that summer, something changed. We've been marching for weeks now, and there's been no change from those in this building. And so we said that we're taking the space, we're holding the space. Lieutenant Jackson, go ahead and tell the rest of your friends in there, but we are going to be setting up these tents out here. We intend to stay until Governor Lee comes out and talks to people about why we're out here. My next guest, oh, excuse me, then community organizer Justin Jones led the group of protesters toward what would become known as the People's Plaza, which went on for 62 days. My next guests were there. Reverend Vanita Lewis is the president of Nashville's chapter of the NAACP and an organizer of the People's Plaza protests. She is joined by fellow organizer Angel Stansberry. Thank you both for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Reverend Lewis, if you could take us back to that first day three years ago, what was going through your mind? Well, when it first happened, you know, being a 40-year civil rights activist, I immediately started making calls. We got to start protests. So a group of us, we met and we actually pulled off the I Will Breathe rally. That was the first one. And thousands actually came out. Uh, Justin Jones were, was one of the speakers at that event. Um, we put on the Nathan Bedford Forest bus rally next. Uh, the Teens for Equality had the, a larger march than the original uh, I Will Breathe. And then... Um, Justin Jones called me and said, Reverend Lewis, the Lord told me to tell you, come and go with me. And so that was my first uh, participation with the People's Plaza. Originally, I thought it was going to be one night protest. Mm -hmm. And then it, it went into 62 days, met a lot of interesting people, including the infamous Angel Stansberry, <laughs> who's a part of the NAACP today. And that was an amazing 
opportunity to protest with my first time after marching with Jesse Jackson and Coretta Scott King to protest with other than black in what was to me something that will an experience that I will will last a lifetime. Now, you you mentioned that there were um, there were many protests going on around the city and that this one became the People's Plaza. Can you just tell me a little bit, how did, how did that happen? How did this one-off protest turn into this much longer protest action? Well, what I actually felt from the very first night when we um, claimed the Ida B. Wells Plaza mm. uh, and the young people, you know, that's my first time uh, protesting with young people. And to be I'm real transparent, protesting with a large group of other than black, my first time. And I marched with Dr. Jose L. Williams and Sandra Bland and, and Trayvon Martin. I was simply amazed at the strength of that young group of people who was defiant and, and standing together in solidarity for change. I met parents uh, who were other than blacks who turned their backs on their children because they mm. were from a privileged community, and uh, their parents said, you have no place in this protest. Then I met parents from Franklin and Brentwood uh, who were there to to push their children along. And, and it, I knew then, uh, with watching the Tennessee Three and looking at the sea of people who were standing in solidarity, that was uh, the remnants uh, of the People's Plaza protest. Mm, yeah. Well, I, I want to get back into those sort of um, uh, effects a little bit later. But you mentioned um, you mentioned the name Ida B. Wells, and I just I, I wanted to ask you that because she was such a kind of symbolic figure that we're talking about the pioneering black journalist and early civil rights leader. Why was she so significant in the context of of the the, the movement then? Well, what it is, I think that Ida B. Wells just became uh, the opportunity. It could have been Frederick Douglass. It, it could have been Megan Edwards. It could have been uh, Rosie Parks. It just, she became uh, the symbol that that bellowed out of, of this protest. And once again, uh, I received uh, direction from the African-American leadership, such as Reverend Enoch Fuzz and Kwame Leo Lillard, whom I fought with uh, when I was younger, to say, Reverend Lewis, your job on the plaza is to protect the young, and I became queen mother of the plaza. Gotcha. So, Angel, how, how did you get involved? So, a couple of days before June 12th, I received a message from Justin Jones, uh, basically saying that these marches are turning into parades, and mm. nobody's taking it seriously, and everybody marches for a little while and then goes back about their day. And he wanted to grab onto that bone and not let go. Mm. And I feel, too, Ida B. Wells' spirit was there. Because mm. remember, before we started our protest, they had knocked down the Edward Carmack statue, and he had called for her to be lynched multiple times. And then her newspaper office was blown up. So we felt that it was right and just that we bring her spirit to the plaza. And Justin always said that, Miss Vanita, Reverend Vanita Lewis brought the spirit of, of Ida B. Wells to that plaza. Yeah. Um, so what, what were your 
as you were out there, what were your demands? What did you want? So we had three main demands that we started off with. Um, we wanted to, we, we had uh, moves, we were talking about police brutality. Um, we wanted Chief Anderson to resign and we were calling to defund the police. Um, secondly, we wanted to remove Confederate monuments. Uh, they stand as a symbol of tyranny and oppression. And we didn't feel like, you know, we need to be seeing that uh, and having, you know, KKK members coming to visit them at the Capitol where there's black lawmakers who have to walk by them every day and deal with that trauma on, on a daily basis. And uh, we, we really we really wanted to see some change. And um, but they responded to our calls against police brutality with police brutality. Mm. And, and that was the situation. And then Governor Lee refused to meet with us. And that was the clincher. So we said, we're staying until he meets with us. Now, um, I imagine there's a big difference between saying, I'm going to go out to a rally and then basically camping out somewhere indefinitely. And I, I imagine this must have been pretty disruptive to your own lives as well. Why did you decide to, to go ahead and do it? You know, I... I had some falling outs with a lot of family members who said that, oh, you know, you have your kids home at the summer, you're missing time with your kids, but I did this for my children. Mm. Whatever we don't fix today, they will inherit. And it might become worse. As we can see, there's been a progressive loss of rights that continues. It's not going to stop in Florida. Tennessee is taking some lessons from Florida and they're not good lessons and it's just going to continue. So my resolve was that this is an opportunity for change. We have to strike while the iron is hot. And I decided to put my body on the line as many others did. All right. I want to bring in our next guest who was a protester at the people's plaza three years ago. Daima McDougall, welcome to This is Nashville. Hello. Hello, everyone. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Um, Daima, tell me, what did it feel like to be out there on the plaza? Um, it felt good. It, it felt like I was doing something right and on the side of right, should I say. It felt incredible every day I was out there. The protest marches, the camping out, it, it was all great. How much time did you spend uh, on the plaza during the during the protests? A lot, probably a month, at least a month. Man, I was out there. <laughs> were, were you there almost every day? Yes, for sure. Um, well, it's it's only been three years, um, but in, in terms of the the new cycle that <laughs> that feels like it could be a decade, I'm I'm curious if if you if you take us back to that time to 2020. Why were you out there protesting? What what was motivating you? Um, I guess at first it was um, anger after watching the George Floyd video. That, that was kind of the catalyst that got me out in the protests. And then just, I guess, my own anecdotal experience from pre-transition, you know, I, I identify as, as a black male. And I could it could have been me, you know, mm -hmm. when I was 18 or 19 or 25 or whatever. So it, it really shook me because I have three other brothers like this could be a lot worse than it is, to, you know, mm -hmm. seeing George Floyd could have been your brother or your cousin or yourself. And yeah. it, that that I think was the fire that kept me 
Yeah. Can, can you describe what the atmosphere was like on, on the plaza when you were there? Um, I mean, it was, it was all over the place. Some days it was, you know, we're out there hip hop dancing and all chilling. And other days it was pretty contentious. We were like a civil war in the, at the plaza. But I think more importantly, we were just all there together for the same purpose. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm senior producer Steve Harouche, sitting in for our host, Khalil Ecolona. We're talking about the People's Plaza protests of 2020 with the Reverend Vanita Lewis, Angel Stansberry, and Daima McDougall. And we want to hear from you. Were you part of the People's Plaza? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Now, Daima, you joined this movement as a protester, but what was your involvement like on the plaza? What, what kinds of things were you doing? Um, whatever I could. Um... I think I was bringing food if I could, feeding people, just whatever whatever help I could lend at that time. So it was it was pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and food and hot, <laughs> <laughs> right? Not not to mention hot, right? It was, it was not quite the mild summer we're having at this at this moment. Um, so um, over the course of the People's Plaza protest, dozens of people were arrested, sometimes forty or fifty at a time, and. Angel, you were one of those people. Um, what, what, tell me, what was that experience like? Uh, um, it, it, it was life-changing. Um, I would say that putting your body on the line in the interest of justice for, for the disenfranchised, um, it, it was a new experience, and I was arrested three separate times. Um, just to be manhandled and treated in a certain way uh, because of the color of my skin is, is it, it, it's more than just, you know, even the physical pain is not as much as the emotional pain. Just knowing that your state government is not here to protect you and actually will hurt you mm. and can. <laughs> um, after the second arrest, when I was arrested that third time, I had to be put um, basically on, uh, I had a, basically a parole officer who I had to check in with, you know, because I'm a high risk now after being arrested three times, even though these are planned arrests. Um, and what, what a lot of people in the public don't understand is state governments aren't concerned about constitutional rights. They will violate your right. You can fight it later, but you still have to go through the process. You still have to be booked and sent to, to jail. At this time, we had COVID. There were no COVID measures at the jail. So we were putting ourselves twice at risk. You know, we're, we're at risk of brutality and being ha having our hands zip tied super tight until the blood circulation cuts off and your hand swells up. Um, and then you get something on your record. And then on top of that, you leave the jail with COVID, mm. as many of us did. We had 234 arrests of a, over 150 people in two months. And we were all at risk for heat stroke, COVID, brutality, um, you know, having strikes on, on us in terms of legality. So you know what it was like. It was it was a revolution in my own in my own uh, body. Mm. 
Now, Reverend Lewis, uh, what were your concerns about the, the just the way these reset the um, excuse me the the way these arrests were being handled? Well, first thing, I was always cautioned by Kwame, we don't need you to get arrested. Mm-hmm. You, we need you to be there to be like the the conduit between um, civil rights leaders who was concerned about the arrest and to be there to protect the the protesters. Uh, many nights having to sing to them while they were locked up in jail, mm-hmm. singing, you know, this little lighter is mine. And I'd be, I would call Senator Gilmore and Mike Stewart. I would call them at, you know, one o'clock at night or text somebody. I got 10 arrested. And uh, to constantly be there to uh, find ways and means to get them out of jail kind of was what I was there for. And it was, you know, 24 hours to watch uh, some. I think the highest arrest for one person was seven times mm. and they would get out and come right back. <laughs> and, th- and and I cannot count or even remember the names of just community organizations, actually predominantly Caucasian, who would come and refuel us, bring us tents, give us money, uh, bring us food. I mean, I think the troopers were simply amazed. How can they reestablish overnight? We had a an umbrella of support. Mm. And um, when I look back at it, it simply amazed me um, how much how truly organized we were. Mm-hmm. We had people that were going to pick up devices, people who were making the calls. We had uh, places to put out, uh, hide things out there. And, I mean, it was, it, the troopers could not keep up with the tenacity of this young group of people who were determined to to bring down the walls. And uh, I think the People's Plaza will go down in history as one of the most robust protests uh, in this city. And it's thanks to the young people, to the legislators, and uh, to the people that guided the ship. And for me in that space, it was amazing. You know, that was conflict resolution. Um, We had exercises. We had dance. We had singing. uh, We had the determination uh, to last for 62 days. And as Angel stated, you know, COVID was still new. We didn't know whether some of us could die out there. Mm. Uh, we tried to be protective. We had our masks. We had cleansers. We had um, people that was there to do the strategic planning, those who were there to uh, uh, organize to get people out. We, we we were more organized than the troopers. They yeah. couldn't keep <laughs> up with the, the wit of this young group of protesters. Now, Daima, I saw you you nodding along when uh, when Reverend Lewis was talking about some of the support that the protesters uh, received. What what did that support feel like to you? Um, it felt incredible because one of my um, good friends, Mel, she, she was there with me during the protest, and she's uh, Caucasian, and like she actually made up a, a human barrier with her and like a, a, a row of Caucasian people, just a human barrier to to keep these riot cops away from us, the protesters. And that to me was just like incredible that they would come out and give that much of themselves for us in our cause. It's, it's, it's touching. It's... Yeah. Um, 
Now, uh, part of the reason for the for the resupply that uh, that you were talking about, Reverend Lewis, was that there, you guys got raided. Um, Angel, what would what would what would happen? <laughs> If they take it down, we're going to put it back we're up. Put it, put right it back, back up. You know, we, gotta, <laughs> we had a chat and yeah. it said, if you take it down, we're going to put it right back. And that's, that's every the time, kind of way we operated. Every time we had a raid, they would, our, our supporters, who were many, and some of them were in Ireland and, and, and Germany and all over the world, would, would send money, would order pizzas, would would buy tents, drop off coolers, uh, big bags of ice, which we went through so many bags of ice per day. I mean, we were we were we were making sure the the homeless community was okay. Also, I mean, without the homeless community, because on the first day of the protest, I went and picked up all these homeless uh, people that I know from my nonprofit, Feed the Need Nashville, and moved them to the plaza because otherwise we'd have nobody there at night. Mm. Not too many people could stay all night. Uh, so we, we, we had our support. We had $750,000 in the Nashville bail fund mm. right in the middle of the protests. Absolutely. So the world knew how important what we were doing was, and they came out and they showed. And, and we have our John Browns out there. You know, this became a multiracial effort. Absolutely. Now, you showed up there almost every day for a month, Daima. What were you hoping would change? Um, overall, just, um, I guess, uh, a finer look at, at the injustices that we were we felt we were, we were facing at that time. I just felt like it was just glanced over, almost like they were gaslighting us in the situation. Oh, no, it's, it's, you know, it's not happening the way you think it's happening. It's... It's okay, you know, this is just one. This is just one. When it wasn't just one and it didn't stop after George Floyd, it, it kind of got almost worse. If you, So I was just like, I just want it, young black men to stop dying at the hands of police officers and not, the police officers just get away with it. It's, it's, they just get away with killing us and it's, that's never cool. Murder's never cool. Hmm. Do, you, hmm? do you think that any of the changes you were you were hoping for have have been realized? No, not here in Tennessee. I, I think it may be a long while here in Tennessee before we actually start to see legislative changes. It's just it's going to be tough. It's going to be a tough, 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 tough hill. Yeah. So I mean that what I'm hearing you say is that we still have a long way to go. Um, oh, definitely. What would what would what would you like to see change? Um, the the handling of policing, I guess they they strong arm it too, just a little more gentle policing in the urban areas, like they would do in the suburban areas, just some equality maybe. Mm. Well, that it was People's Plaza protester Daima McDougal. Daima, thank you so much thank for you. being here today. Thank you. Uh, the Reverend Vanita Lewis and Angel Stansbury will stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll continue our look back at the People's Plaza protest of 2020 and talk about what has and hasn't happened since. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back.
I'm Steve Harouche, and this is Nashville. We're talking this hour about the People's Plaza protest, which began on this day, June 12, 2020. The occupation of the plaza lasted 62 days until the Tennessee legislature approved a change in state law that made camping on public property a felony. Joining me now to reflect on the impact of the People's Plaza is Mike Stewart, who was the District 52 state representative at the time. Mike, thanks for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me. So we've been talking about what it was like on the plaza that summer, and I know you visited quite a bit, quite a bit. Um, but I want to start by asking you, what were the conversations like inside the Capitol as protesters were basically setting up camp outside? Well, they were varied. I mean, for many of us, uh, was the thought that, good, there should be protests. People have a right to protest, and it's a very important matter, and there needs to be change. We we uh, welcomed the pressure, the public pressure. We thought it was good for us. Uh, others took a different view, obviously. There were people that were, you know, treated the protesters as a threat, and as this huge, big problem. Um, I'd like to think I've never felt protesters were a problem, whether they were for things that I agreed with, like in this case, or against them. You know, I feel like the people, it's this America, people should get out and protest when it's appropriate. But, uh, you know, I myself and, and many of my fellow legislators, we welcomed the protesters because we thought they were making an important point. And did you feel like that message was was getting through? Oh, definitely. I think it was a very effective protest. I mean, it was critical to have the presence every single day. Otherwise, even though we all saw, um, you know, everybody experienced the tragedy of George Floyd being killed brutally, personally, but, you know, without the protesters, even news of that import would have lost its its power, I think, without people being there every single day to say, look, no, I mean, this is really a, a present day problem for Tennessee. It's not something that happened in Minneapolis. It's something that is happening right now, today. So, no, I thought the protesters were not only right, but they were, they were in many cases, sacrificing jobs, time, um, time with children uh, to, uh, to really stand up for Tennesseans as a whole. So it was very helpful. It was not, as we've seen, obviously, a lot, you know, the journey continues. In fact, there have been some missteps and backward steps lately. We've seen the legislature this year, the Republicans in the legislature, rolling back police oversight. So in many cases in Tennessee, we've gone in exactly the opposite direction the way we should be going. Nevertheless, the, the protests in 2020 were very effective, and I really think kept kept these agenda items on the front burner, whereas they would have maybe drifted behind budgetary concerns and all the sort of normal routine things that legislators do in their daily routines. Well, two of the People's Plaza organizers, the Reverend Vanita Lewis and Angel Stansberry, are still with us. And Angel, what did it mean to you to have the support of state lawmakers like Mike? I don't think we'd have been able to continue for 62 days without that support. Uh, just knowing that we had at least some legislative uh, influence in there. Um, they they definitely were arbiters when we had issues getting into the Capitol in an official capacity. Um, 
there was several times that I remember um, us wanting to just go into the building just like any other Tennessean is supposed to to be able to on a on a regular day and uh, Mike having to step in and say you know they're my guests um, mm. you know and uh, you know that meant that meant a lot to us because we in our protests, we really tried to stay peaceful. We were within our legal rights, and we had legal observers, and we had attorneys that were ensuring that we stayed within our legal right. And there were multiple times where we'd be arrested, and we'd say, can you tell us what Tennessee annotated code we are in violation of? Mm. And they wouldn't be able to tell us. Um, And sometimes they would say camping or, you know, criminal trespassing. And then, you know... At the end of the summer, uh, based a lot on on the actions of Reverend Lewis and her and uh, Senator Gilmore and their meetings with Howard Gentry and and the DA uh, Glenn Funk, um, most of these charges, the vast majority, were nollied. Um, I didn't even have to go to into a courtroom, not even one time. So it that just vindicated us in the end, and uh, you know we. We haven't seen the kind of change that I would like to see in America in general. But we did get, after a year, they did ban no-knock warrants and chokeholds with no exceptions. And Tennessee is, is a rarity, um, even for the, for the South. I mean, there's, there's states in the North that, that have exceptions. Um, I, I feel like that, in part, was a result of our pressure. Now, you mentioned uh, sort of the some of the after effects of those arrests and, and Reverend Lewis, I, you met, uh, Angel mentioned working with the DA, talking to the DA. Can you, can you talk about what, what that was like after, as people were getting arrested and you were trying to, 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 to support them? Well, after we were banned from the plaza, then we have all of the rest. Uh, a lot of the uh, protesters was calling me. They couldn't get housing. Uh, they, they couldn't get back in school. They couldn't get jobs. So then, you know, I got pissed off. I'm going to keep it real with you. And so I I met with the DA. He knew me, but he really didn't know me Um, on numerous occasions by myself. And I simply told him that I would bring on an onslaught of support if these charges wasn't dropped. I I think that I don't think at first first he didn't believe me. So then we organized. I think the first meeting, it, it was probably 10 of the most powerfulest people in the city. Mike, you were there, right? And Yarbrough and Senator Gilmore and State Rep. Mike, um, uh, Vincent Dixie, Harold Love, uh, leading preachers, uh, uh, Madam Sharon Hurd, and, and we gave demands. And uh, some of those were followed uh, through but we still had many charges. So we met on an individual basis two or three more times. Then I think State Rep. Mike Stewart and Brenda, we went back. But um, long story short, we were persistent until all of the charges were dropped so these young people could get back in school, go about their lives. But um, that in itself became uh, the end. But the most exciting piece to me was when we were at the Capitol when they rolled out the Nathan Bedford Forrest bus head. Uh, and, and we got two other generals. Do you know who, the, who they were? I don't, I don't know. But we got Farragut and 
I can't remember the other one. But we, we and th- that move was a humongous for the African-American community, for the people who had to represent in, in districts that were African-American to to uh, go up or the elevator and then have to have Nathan Bedford Forrest bus breathing down your back. And so many uh, young uh, uh, schools, uh, junior high, high schools, traveling and learning the education of of the state. And that's the first big, robust bus that, and they would read that history. And so we did accomplish that. And I feel like even though the state of Tennessee is going through some issues now, uh, we are still in control and we will demand uh, justice uh, from the spirit uh, of the People's Plaza and the George Ford uh, area. Now, um, during the summer of 2020, uh, news organizations were also taking stock of how they approach coverage, uh, especially of communities of, of color. And Angel, I wonder, how well do you think that local media coverage captured what, what you were doing on the plaza? Well, I, I feel like the the mainstream ones uh, are still a little bit beholden to their viewership. Um, and this is Tennessee. I mean, when you see some of the polls that that they have, um, you know, you, you can can kind of tell the, the demographics politically of, of the viewership. So I feel like they kind of cater to that a little bit. So they, um, I, I would say News 5 and News 2 were constantly there and they, they were an objective voice. Fox 17 was a little more conservative in, in their views and, and kind of took, I felt like, the the troopers, you know, um, side na- side of the narrative to heart a little bit more. Uh, and then we had the more liberal uh, bodies, I wouldn't really call it news, but media outlets like the Tennessee Holler, for instance, that were, you know, was covering us, um, you know, in our favor and made us look really good because it's a liberal uh, newscast. But there were times when I remember them being denied access to the Capitol and while Fox 17 was being allowed access. And mm. then I remember another time where uh, a News 5 reporter told me that the troopers were were not going to talk to him anymore because they didn't like how they portrayed the troopers in a previous article. And there were, there were little things like that. But overall, I, I felt that uh, our local news, I mean, they were always underground. And I felt like they did a a pretty good job in, in the way they depicted what was going on uh, on a factual basis. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm senior producer Steve Harouche sitting in for our host, Khalil Ecolona. We're talking this hour about the impact of the People's Plaza protests of 2020 with Reverend Vanita Lewis, Angel Stansberry, and Mike Stewart. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Now, Governor Billy never did meet with the protesters, but Angel, were there positive changes? Uh, you mentioned a couple earlier, but are there other positive changes that you would want to highlight that came out of this? Um, well, Chief Anderson did resign. Um, and, and you know, I, I, don't, I don't personally feel like John Drake is much better. Uh, but I, uh, I'm hopeful that at least we put them on notice. Uh, just like Mike was saying, um, you know, they know that we we are not letting this go. 
now that the People's Plaza is over, we've all assumed roles in civil rights to some extent. You know, uh, Reverend Lewis is, is the president of the NAACP. I was her campaign manager. I, I'm the chair of the criminal, uh, the criminal Justice Committee. Uh, Justin Jones is a state rep. You know, we are, are transitioning and stepping up our movement. We're getting more tools in our toolbox uh, so that we can, you know, take on the business of the people a little more aggressively mm-hmm. with some bite. Now, Mike, I know it's only been three years, but when you look back at this time, what do you see as the impact of the People's Plaza? I think the biggest impact, and it, it follows what uh, Reverend Lewis and Angel said, um, the biggest impact is regardless of the formal fight in the legislature over review power by the people, formal boards, which is you know is a matter, unfortunately, of controversy, um, this movement itself has imposed public review on these important issues. So now everybody's on notice in Nashville that each each incident will be subjected to scrutiny by a wide range of people who are very active and very empowered. And thus, that effectively has a great oversight uh, effect because nobody thinks anymore that the sort of tragedy that happened with George Floyd would happen in Nashville and that there would be a conspiracy of silence about it. Everybody understands it's going to be a highly public event subjected to enormous amounts of scrutiny. And that, in and of itself, the protests in and of themselves and what they have led to creates creates oversight and, and I think will have a tempering effect and, and, and impose hopefully rationality on our system of policing. You know, essentially it says the public is going to be there all the time looking at this. And you've seen that with the Nashville Police Force recently. In many cases, Nashville Police Force, before even being asked to, has released videotapes of particular incidents. And that is a reflection of these protests and what has happened because, because it's understood now that the default is that this whole part of our acti- of our civic activity policing policing our community is under just a much greater oversight by the community as a whole and I, that's a very positive that's a very positive impact and it's good that the citizens of Nashville understand that uh, interactions between police and citizens are now always going to be scrutinized and that that helps the police it helps all citizens because it, it, it says everything is going to be done in the daylight. And that is always good for our citizens. Mm. Now, this year we have seen some big protests once again, uh, this time for gun regulation after the mass shooting at Covenant. And Reverend Lewis, do you think that the 2020 protests helped pave the way for those? Absolutely. What I think with the George Floyd protest that it organized a younger generation of protesters that will not go away. If you notice with the New Covenant shooting and with um, the Tennessee Three, you 
you got to see that younger generation come back out. Uh, I think it have ushered in a group of protesters that will not go away. I think that impact will show up in the 2024 election. I think some of the rural counties, uh, some of these young, uh, other than black protesters, I think they will uh, associate themselves with a Democratic uh, ticket with a Democratic voice. And I think that is the this is the remnant of the George Floyd protesters. If you notice with the Tennessee Three, uh, there were protesters who were, uh, they laid them by, their bodies on, on the floor uh, at the Capitol, and they were majority other than black. Young uh, fighters that I think who are saying to the legislators that uh, we must change direction. And I think you will see that coming up in 2024, state rep races and uh, with the race coming up uh, uh, for the presidential election. All right. Well, that was the Reverend Vanita Lewis, president of the Nashville chapter of the NAACP. She was joined by fellow People's Plaza and NAACP uh, member Angel Stansberry and then representative, uh, state representative Mike Stewart. I want to thank you all so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Elizabeth Burton and myself. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcast. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville, find us on Instagram, and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm senior producer Steve Harouche. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.